0: Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to Daniel chapter 2. We are going to plow through a lot of verses today, but it's just a it's, it's a powerful story. It's an important story, and so uh, I want to make sure we're kind of covering the breadth of this topic. And I would just encourage you, if you have a, a, one of those old-fashioned print Bibles, uh, go ahead and open one of those, or if you don't have one, just download something like YouVersion uh, or uh, the ESV app and follow along that way. I just... I think it's important for us, especially in these moments where uh, we can be like, if you go look in Acts 17, Paul and Silas in Berea, it says the the brothers and sisters there were noble. They were examining the Scriptures and, and looking at it to see if what they were saying is true. And so I think it's just important for us to see if what I'm saying is true. Hopefully it is. Uh, And then also, uh, this is just kind of a formative event in the week where uh, we're helping one another figure out how do we read God's Word throughout the week. If this is the only time you're spending in God's work a week, you are spiritually starving to death. Uh, And so uh, we really just want this to be a time of equipping as well. So we'd love for you to have open Bibles. It will be up on the screens as well. But as we uh, have started this book, we spent two weeks in the book of Daniel, there's two main themes that have emerged that we're going to see over and over again. And the first has to do with God being in control of everything, right? He is sovereign. He is powerful. Even while God's people are in exile, he is the one who uh, is behind all of the workings of the world in this moment. And then the second topic that we're going to talk about, we're going to hear a lot about, and we already have this morning, is the fact that God's people in this book are exiles. And if we claim to be a Christian, If we claim to be a follower of Christ, if we go and read Paul in Philippians 3, if we go read Peter in 1 Peter, if we go and read the author of Hebrews, God's Word seems to think that that we, if we claim to be followers of Christ, are also exiles. And so a lot of these themes we will read here are themes that we can apply to our lives here today. And there's two aspects of being an exile uh, that is important for us. One is humility and the other is hope. As it pertains to humility, there is a humility if we consider ourselves to be exiles we 're not the dominant culture there 's a place where we walk into it with a form of humility where we recognize i 'm not going to change the world right nobody 's done it yet except for you know this guy named Jesus uh, a while ago right but but we can 't do it on our own, and so there 's an air of humility that we have towards culture, but there 's also a, a hope that we have in a kingdom that is to come. And as those two things work together, you know what we're able to do as we engage with culture? We're able to serve it. Not because we're trying to hold on to our own kingdoms with bloody knuckles, but but because God's kingdom is to come. We have that hope, and that way, in humility, we can love and serve culture. And as we think about exile, sometimes we're like, that's such a negative theme, right? To be uh, kept out of our true home, right? And Paul talks about that uh, being eternity with the God of the universe. You know, sometimes that makes us think, okay, well then being in exile is all bad and I just might as well go in the fetal position in the corner and wait for my little earth escape pod so somebody can douse, you know, gasoline over this whole thing and flick a cigarette and let it all burn, right? That can be the posture we take towards culture, but I wish I had time to go into it this week. But if you go back and read Jeremiah 24 to 29, it is a great companion uh, passage uh, to understand what's going on in exile. God is actually saying to his people, it's actually not bad that you're going into exile. Now, what's led to this is bad, but God's actually saying in Jeremiah 24 that for those of my people who remain in Jerusalem or go down to Egypt, they're going to face judgment. But for those who I send into exile, Jeremiah 24, he's talking about the good figs, if you want to go back and read that parable. He said, that's actually a good thing. I'm taking you there to protect you and I'm putting you there to seek the welfare of the place where I'm put you. And I have good things for you to walk in. And so friends, as we think of ourselves as exiles, it's not all bad. In fact, it's largely good because God has put us here in this time and in this place to do the work that he's called us to. And so we're going to see some glimpses of that as we walk through Daniel 2 this morning. So again, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. And Can I just pray for us as we get rolling here this morning? Lord, admittedly, uh, I internally can fight against this posture of exiles, and maybe it's in part cultural because, um, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know if it's the anger in my heart or wanting to protect my own kingdom, but it's just tough for me to to wait on you and and, and to rest in your sovereignty and in your control and and to rest in that. And Lord, I imagine it's hard for uh, many others of us to do that as well. Or we go to the other ditch of complacency. Uh, And just kind of wait for our escape pod to take off. Uh, Lord, wherever we land, I pray that you will use this time in your word to guide our hearts to what you would have us do and how you would have us live as exiles. And so, Holy Spirit, would you work in and through me this morning? And would you work in every single one of our hearts as we submit ourselves to your word? Uh, Lord, it is um, your bread that you have given to us to sustain us for this day. So would you do so? We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to basically read a little bit, talk a little bit, read a little bit, talk a little bit, do a little summary at the end of each one of these scenes. So it's going to feel maybe a little bit different than three points, you know, explanation, illustration, application, right? So we're going to mix it up. We'll see how this goes. Uh, But again, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and follow along. And let's launch in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Daniel writes. It says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. All right. So Nebuchadnezzar, this great king and conqueror of Babylon. Nebi's not sleeping so well, right? I know Nebi's not his name. He'd probably kill me if he were alive today, but I wrote it in my notes, so I said it out loud. But uh, anyway, he's having dreams. He's not sleeping, right? Uh, one one commentator said this, he said, When tyrants suffer from bad dreams, God is at work. When tyrants suffer from bad dreams, God is at work. And so the Lord's up to something in this passage. And so um, the reason dreams are such a big deal and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is terrified, we don't know what the dream is yet. Uh, but dreams back then, especially when a conqueror, commander, king, over a nation had these things, it's troubling to them, especially if it's a hard dream, because they believe that's a foretelling of something that's to come. And so he's gathering all the wise people, right, to come and interpret him. So let's keep going in verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. Firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. All right, so you'll see he's saying Chaldeans here. Now, if you're wondering what he's talking about, Chaldeans, at least initially, was a generic term for the Babylonians, but here it's taking on an even more distinct, um, or it's, it's meant to basically capture all the wise men, fortune tellers, those who are good in magic lore and interpreting dreams, and so that's what Chaldeans mean here, and the other thing that we can basically summarize from those two verses is Nebuchadnezzar is terrifying. Can you imagine working for this guy, right? It's Like, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, I'm going to tear your arms off and I'm going to burn your house down, is essentially what he's saying. Don't work for those people. All right, uh, eight and nine. Let's keep going. The king answered and said, "I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you: you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before uh, before me until the times change. Therefore, tell me the dreams, and I shall and, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation." All right. So as he keeps going, uh, he's basically kind of calling their bluff, right? Uh, You know, fortune tellers. The irony about things like fortune tellers is, if you first of all, don't go to a fortune teller. It's not what I'm saying as I say this, but but if you were to go to one and you walked in the door and they didn't immediately like tell you your name and why you're there, you should turn around and leave because they're fortune tellers. They should be able to tell you what's going on. Don't you know? He's he's sitting here going, guys, I'm calling your bluff. You don't really know. What's going on? I've had this dream. You don't even know what it is, right? Uh, He's saying, you're you're buying time. You're waiting until I'm less grumpy. uh, And and then you're going to kind of give me something that I want to hear. Or maybe you will even tell me bad news. When verses 10 and 11, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not in flesh. All right. So for the Chaldeans, um, he's called their bluff. He's threatened their lives. And they've finally gone, you got me. You got me. Like like, humanly speaking, king, nobody can do this. In fact, the only thing that can do this is something that, exists outside of the known universe a god right and so here the lord is just kind of setting the table for him to come in and show up you know i I think there's an important cultural aspect to this that that these chaldean well first of all i want you to think about the most powerful man in the world has no clue what's going on i mean does that strike you i mean he's the most powerful person in the world and he doesn't have a clue what's going on he's scared out of his mind and he goes to the people who are supposed to help, and they're saying, you know, you're just asking mere mortals to answer questions that we can't answer. And then they're making this hypothesis or this statement where they're saying, and, hey, um, nothing in the universe can actually figure this out. You have to go outside of the known universe to a God. So I would just say this, this first scene that we see is, is it's showing us what Babylon can't you know, as exiles, we need to look around and go, what can this place that we find ourselves in exile, what can't it do? And and I think they're answering this question. Babylon cannot give us the answers to life. It can't be found in humans. It can't even be found in the universe. It has to be found outside of it. Friends, even back here, thousands of years ago when this was written, it pushes against some of our cultural norms or where we've been taught to Get our answers from right. The first is from humanism, right, or self, our self religions that we come up with. I was reading from the great philosophical journal People Magazine the other day, and uh, it was a story about J Lo, right? You know, J Lo. You've been following J Lo's story, right? A Rod engaged, they broke up, back with Ben. What a story, right? Don't you love it? It's a great story. Not really, um, but. But as as they're kind of asking her, like, what's going on? She's like, I'm finding happiness, it's kind of finding it in my family and people, and I'm and I'm happy right now. And but there's just all this talk of, you know, I'm finding happiness in myself and the answers to life in myself. And and the question that the the reporter finally said, So are you happy now and, and or are you happy and do you think this will last? And and she just made this one statement. She's like, Yeah, for now. <laughs> How you feeling if you've been right now? For now, right? Like terrified, right? you have having some talks with J-Lo after reading People Magazine. Um, but but in a way, I think that's just kind of the picture of our time. We have been taught to find truth in all the answers, in human beings, and in ourselves. And there's something in us that goes, yeah, I'm okay for now. But we know that those answers aren't there for us in here. Now, the other option that we've been told is is we can find it maybe outside of people, Right, Uh, But we might be able to find it in this kind of universe thing that we live in. But I came across this picture. This is a sunken garden outside of the rare book collection of Yale University. And this is really at least this artist's understanding of how the universe works. And over here we have a pyramid. That represents time. Uh, Up there you have a donut. I don't know what that really is. If that's a thing and I'm offending you by calling it donut, I apologize. But it looks like a donut. And that represents energy. Uh, and then that little die on its edge represents chance, right? It's getting ready to fall one way or the other. And, and oftentimes when we talk about, hey, we've we got to just look to the universe and what happens, this is actually the formula that we're drawing from. Yeah, it's time plus energy plus however that die is going to fall, one way or the other. Just complete and utter chance. But friends, if we stop and think about it, we're, we're saying, if this is what we believe, that we're caught up in a game of cosmic pinball that we live in a world of whatever, right? And it's just kind of spinning wildly out of control. I think at least part of what we can pull out of this text here today is is either of these versions. Finding all of our answers in humanity, finding all of our answers in this non-personal universe is a lie. That self-religion is nothing but a religious cul-de-sac. That chance is nothing but this opaque thing. It's going to drive us mad over time. And, and really, there's no sure word that can come from inside the system, but only outside of it. And so, friends, Babylon cannot give us the answers to life. It can't answer its mysteries. It cannot ease our fears. And it cannot, it cannot, it cannot meet our longings. Well, with Daniel and his friends, we see God begin to turn the page and say, here's where we were, are able to find our answers. And it's this picture of witness and rest. And by rest, I mean prayer here uh, as we dig a little bit deeper. So we're going to look at this next scene. But before we jump into this next scene, can I just share with you one more scene from one of my favorite movies of all time? I love I love the Bourne movies. I love the Bourne movies. They're just some of my favorites. And I might have read this quote before, but early on in one of his, in the first movie, he's sitting there and he's trying to figure out who he is, right? He has this amnesia going on. He doesn't know who he is, and he's talking to someone in a restaurant, and he says, he says, why is this that I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside? I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed, and the guy sitting up in the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is in the cab of the gray truck outside, and at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Now, why would I know that? How can I know that and not know who I am? So here's Here's what Jason Bourne's saying. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying as exiles we become assassins, right? Because that's what Jason Bourne was. It's not what I'm saying. But but, but what we see from the Jason Bourne story, at least this picture, is his understanding of of who we are, who our understanding of who we are and what's formed us is actually what comes out of us, right? As we respond to life. And so what we're getting ready to read is, is really Daniel's understanding of who he is as a child of the king and it dictates how he responds to what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar. So let's pick back up in thirteen. So Nebuchadnezzar gets mad, right? Because his seers basically say, "Yeah, we can't come up with uh, the answer here. Sorry, only God can do that." So uh, we pick back up in thirteen, and he says this: the decree went out, and the wise men—or uh, or, I'm sorry—the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed because he basically said, "Go kill the wise men." And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied and produced uh, with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And when Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Now let's pause there for a second. Here's what's going on now. So he's mad. And he goes, we're going to go kill all the wise men. Now, Daniel and his friends, they had graduated from Babylon U, right? They had gotten their degree. They'd been, you know, raised to the point of being some of these wise men, even if, even if they weren't interpreting dreams in the same way these Babylonians were. And basically, Daniel's like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, we're in trouble. And so it's crazy. Did you see what he did? He went to talk to Ariok. Did you read who Ariok is and what his job is? His job is to go out and kill the wise men. Daniel seeks him out. He's like, Aria, come here, man. Can we talk? What's going on? Like, why do you want to kill me? What, what's happening? And it says he approached him with prudence and wisdom. Whereas there is so much just in this one little nugget about living as an exile. You know what it assumes? It assumes that Daniel actually had good relationships with the non-believing folk in his culture. It says that Daniel actually believes places like the Proverbs that teaches us how to live wisely, not arrogantly, not in anger. And he goes up to them and responds in prudence and wisdom. It's beautiful. It's so different than how even in the church we are responding to our culture today. But let's keep going. Let me ask you this question. If, If you were Daniel, how would you respond to Nebuchadnezzar's decree? Like, would you go home and pull out your... Babylon, you notes from dream interpretation 101 and go okay we got to get this right we got to get this right would you go home and start a petition about how nebuchadnezzar is unjust and whatnot would you rail would you get angry is that what he did you probably know the answer to that but let's keep going 17 daniel went to his house and made the matter known to hananiah mishael and azariah his companions that's shadrach meshach and abednego And they told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. How did Daniel respond? Prayer. Prayer. He said, there is no way we've got this on our own. He goes home and he calls one of the few believers, several, the three few believers who are in the culture, and said, guys, we're cooked unless God shows up. Let's beg him for his mercy and for his wisdom. Oh, how different is that, right? What's your first response when you're faced with a situation like Daniel does? Is it Prayer? Is it hitting our knees before the God of the universe and say, we're cooked, save your mercy and you giving us wisdom that we can't muster on our own, that can only be found outside of the universe? You know, one of my friends, when I've sat down with them with an impossible question, what should I do? I love it where he says, well, this is what I do. I pray, I enlist prayer, and I wait patiently on the Lord. Oh, I rattle that around in my head so often. And I think that's what Daniel is modeling for us here. Here's the reality. Our first responses reveal who we believe we are. Our first responses reveal who we believe we are. Daniel and his friends believe that we are children of the King, that we can trust Him, that we can rely on Him. When we, and I see this in myself all the time, respond in fear and anxiety and and anger, it's revealing that we actually don't believe that we are children of the most high, sovereign, loving, good God. Here's the main theological thrust of Daniel's response in this moment. And it's a second prayer, right? We don't know the words he prayed in the first prayer, but he prays a second prayer in response to God revealing these things to him in verse 20. It says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God, forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those of understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the kings matter. Friends, we could spend a whole sermon on this passage alone. But do you hear the theology that comes bubbling out of Daniel in this moment where he just should be terrified and in the fetal position, sucking his thumb, not wanting to go out, much less going after the guy who should kill him, right? All wisdom and might belong to you. Daniel knows that whatever power, rule, and authority Nebuchadnezzar has, it's flowing downhill to him. For whatever purpose, we don't know. Actually, we do have an idea. It's impart judgment over God's people. But, but what he knows is Nebuchadnezzar is just like anybody else we know in power. If you are in power, it's flowed downhill to you. You cannot create that on your own. We're all essentially solar panels. We can't generate power and authority on our own. It is borrowed from the God of the universe to steward and to use well. Daniel's saying, this king's on borrowed time. Wisdom flows from him as well. He changes times and seasons. I'm sure Daniel's thinking, we might die, or we might not. But we're not in control of seasons, are we? God is. He removes and sets up kings. If we buried this deep in our hearts, do you know how, how, how much less anxiety would be in the system over the course of the last 2, three, four, 20, 50 years in our nation? Trump came to power. God wanted it. And he was removed because God wanted it. And Biden came to power because God wanted it. And he one day will be removed because God wants it. And the same is true for Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and any other person we might be afraid of. I'm not minimizing the actions that they take, but I am saying if we believe this is true about God, there is rest and dependence in prayer that should come flowing out of those who say, I believe in this God. He gives wisdom and knowledge and understanding. It can't come from us. We don't know it all. We can't see it all. You know, as we're walking with our kids who are walking away from the Lord, or a friend who won't turn to Christ in faith, it says He reveals deep things. He knows what's in the darkness. He has the light that can shine. There is a rest that comes in that. It's fascinating what Daniel does on the heels of this in verse 24. Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the men of Babylon, and he went and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. It is fascinating that he says, Don't kill the other wise men. And he's not talking about his own folks. He's talking about these folks in Babylon. How hard would that be? If these people came into your homeland, removed you, killed your family, burned your house, and then to say, don't kill them. Let me go before the king. This is such a Luke 6 moment of loving your enemy. 27 and 28. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king... The mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mystery and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. You know, a friend of mine said, Anthony, I'm not sure I like this motif of exile, right? Because sometimes it does feel like we need to push against culture, right? And in a way, I get what he's saying. I think sometimes we think this idea of exile and we consider in ourselves, this is just going to lead to complacency. But I think here we see a very different picture. We see Daniel, knowing he's in exile, driven to prayer. That's his primary activity. We'll see here in a moment, he's also driven to witness, right? To witness to this great king, to introduce him to Yahweh. We also see him actively serving and loving his enemy. Friend, that, that is what overflows from the heart of an exile who is trusting a king and a kingdom. That is to come. So maybe this week, that moment where we get angsty, angry, we want to just kind of chirp off some silly little comment about whatever social thing that is really bothering us or make that silly little post, we stop and go, I'm going to call a friend and we're going to pray and beg the Lord to give us an opportunity to preach the gospel to someone who needs to hear it. What if we did that? Real quick, these final scenes. Here's the dream. I don't want to leave you on a cliffhanger. What did the dream say, Anthony? I know you were sitting there wondering these things. So let me read you the dream. Daniel said, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron and clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff on the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Here's Daniel's interpretation. It's longer. I'm just going to summarize it for you. But Daniel's basically saying, hey, this big image that you have of different types of metals, you know, descending from the best type of gold on down. He's saying these represent kingdoms that are to come. He says, you're the head of gold. But he said, there's other kingdoms that are going to come. And there's many conservative commentators who believe that he's talking about the kingdoms that rose up after this from the sixth, fourth, and first centuries B.C., You've got the Medo-Persian Empire, you've got uh, Alexander the Great in Greece, and you have the Roman Empire that followed after that. And the main ideas, really, that you can uh, come up with out of these are these two principles. One, each earthly kingdom will have its glory, and it will also have its end. Every earthly kingdom will have its glory, but it will also have its end. But here's the uh, second point. The progression of world history is not upward towards glory, but downward into disunity and dishonor. That's why we need God to redeem it. But here's what he says about this rock, this rock that comes in and crushes it and becomes dust so that the wind carries it away. It says, this rock shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring to an end, and it shall stand forever. And he's talking about a kingdom that God will one day bring. And we're going to get to this whole idea of kingdom a little bit later in this book. But in short, it's saying there's this little rock, right, that's not made with human hands, that's small, that's going to crush all these mighty kingdoms. And after that, this rock is going to become a big mountain. And if you're paying attention and you know your New Testaments a little bit, it's the picture of God's kingdom starts like a mustard seed and it turns into this huge tree that one day will be the ultimate kingdom of kingdoms. And Jesus also talks about this uh, this parable in Luke 20 where he actually talks about the stone being himself and him bringing in this kingdom. It says he looked directly at them, the people he was telling this story of the wicked tenants. And he quotes Psalm 118 here in a second. He says, he said, What is written, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. He's echoing what's been said in places like Psalm 2 that says, the nations are going to rage, but it's futile. That Jesus' kingdom will one day be set up in its perfection, and it will defeat every other kingdom. That every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And friends, I will just tell you, every single nation, including our own, will follow that pattern. Every single kingdom business or business that thinks they're a kingdom, will follow that pattern. And if we have set up our own little internal personal kingdoms, it too, if it is not yielded to Christ, will be defeated by him because he is our rightful king. Del Ralph Davis says this, We are to serve where we have been placed within the fading kingdom as we go on waiting for the final kingdom. We are to serve where we have been placed within the fading kingdom as we go on waiting for the final kingdom. Here's the last scene, and it's Daniel 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods, the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Friends, can we just sit there on that for just a second? This big, scary conqueror king collapsed and fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel. Think about the biggest, scariest ruler you could ever imagine. That's what's going to happen one day before Jesus Trimper Longman says the most powerful pagan in the world lies prostrate before an exiled Jew. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, that's exactly what we see, except that exiled Jew is not Daniel. It's Jesus Christ. You see, we might say, we need to be like Daniel, right? Because it feels like we do. And I'll be honest, like it would be good if we responded to life in exile as Daniel did. And there's some goodness to that. But even Daniel's response, if we're reading carefully, in his actions are a response to who he believes God is. And I think there's a faith where he believes there is going to be another king, and we'll read this later in Daniel chapter 7, that will be king of kings and Lord of lords. And that's how we respond as hopeful exiles. Let me pray for us, and then we'll move to communion here this morning. Lord, it strikes me that even in this passage, you are fulfilling your promise to Abraham, where you say, go and I will make you a blessing to the nations. And you have used exile to bring Daniel to this earthly king of kings, to introduce him to yourself, to Yahweh, and to be that blessing to the nations. Lord, I pray that as a church that you would convince us of this picture of you being the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that, Lord, we would bow our knee to you in our hearts if we have not, and that, God, you would continue to convince us that we are able to live as faithful, humble, and hopeful exiles because of who you are. We love you, Lord. Be with us as we move towards the table this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.